0: From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. Until very recently, I thought that owning a vineyard in France was like owning your own money printing machine. But then I read the most recent story from Bloomberg tax correspondent Sean Courtney, and I realized, no, actually, winemaking in France is just like any other agribusiness out there. Tough, dirty work. And beyond being subject to the whims of Mother Nature, French grape growers face perhaps an even larger obstacle, the way their country taxes inheritance. Sean's story looks into how inheritance taxes, which date back to the Napoleonic era, are threatening the future of family-owned French vineyards, and what that means not just for the country's economy, but for its entire sense of self. I spoke to Sean about what's going on here, but first I asked her to describe the vineyard she visited in France's famous Champagne region.
1: So I drove about 100 miles east of Paris to a small town called Duvois, Uh, it took about two to three hours driving depending on traffic. And when you arrive, it's just these incredible rolling hills and planted all along the sides of the road are vineyards or grapevines. And, uh, you can't, you can't really drive without seeing them. Um, and it's usually like a one lane road and, you know, you're sometimes pulling over a little bit to let a tractor go by (laughs) or another car. And, uh, we went to visit with, uh, Sophie Moussi, who, uh, is now the owner of her family's champagne business. Uh, They have several hectares of champagne vines in uh, Champagne-Ardennes region. Most of them are in the Montagne de Reims. Yeah, it was. I mean, just truly beautiful. I mean, what you what you imagine, it's everything and and more. Just uh, tons of green, and uh, and this was in March, so I can only imagine what it would look like now.
0: Yeah, so I'm thinking of uh, March. I guess that's you're getting ready to for things to get warmer. Was it? I mean, certainly it wasn't harvest season, right? But what what were they up to on the vineyards? Do you remember?
1: so like yeah the winter is a little bit of a quiet time in a lot of vineyards it's more like managing the barrels of last year's harvest they're kind of testing all the the levels to see how they're aging if the sugars are fermenting well um and like what kind of qualities they're taking on uh, when you actually are going into the vines it's just these like really gnarly almost like stick looking things that are all kind of just like somehow by some small miracle uh, uh standing straight up on on the, the side of a pretty steep hill and most of them didn't have any green on them yet if you had a, a bud here or there but this is sort of a more dormant period where um the the starting of a bud is just starting to uh, appear and it's kind of a a delicate time, too, because if it gets too cold this late in the season, it could be really problematic, and you want to make sure there's enough rain, but not too much. So there's all those things that any farmer has to think about.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like it was basically sort of the the wine sampling and wine tasting season, which is seems like it'd be a, a pretty fun time of year to be in a vineyard. But the reason you were visiting, Sophie, uh, was not to sample her wines, but to talk about this really complex and difficult inheritance process that she Went through. Um, tell me about that. What was what was that like, and what were some of the hurdles that she encountered?
1: Well, in France, generally, it's pretty uh, c'est compliqué, as the French say, it's complicated, <laughs> uh, in that. Uh-huh. Um, You know, you you have these rules that dictate how you can hand down your property from one generation to the next, and depending on how many heirs there are, it can really uh, get very specific where if there is a living spouse, it goes one way, but if the spouse is deceased and then there's a certain number of children, but then there are grandchildren.
0: So it matters how many kids you have, it sounds like.
1: Yes, it matters how many kids you have. Uh, It's dictated unless you uh, say otherwise, but there is a requirement that you have to follow certain rules. And a lot of these rules actually date back to Napoleonic Code about how to, to divide up your land. And so she had to kind of work through some of that um, after her her grandfather was the one who owned the, the land. And uh, unfortunately, his wife had actually passed away uh, before he had. And then her mother and her father are involved. She has a sister. So there was a lot of um, logistics that they had to go through. And they had a whole team of helpers, um, specialized notaries who go to school for I don't know, something like like eight extra years after they finish what we would consider undergrad, just to get the appropriate levels of uh, legal and technical training to know how to maneuver to get the best possible outcome.
0: Right. And I'm glad you alluded to uh, the planning that takes place. And, you know, it sounds like very complicated planning if you need to go to that much, get that much schooling just to be able to do it. But there's also the issue of what happens when there's no planning, when there isn't a, a will in place or when you don't have an estate plan. It sounds like in those situations, when you're handing down an estate, it can be a, kind of a nightmare. <laughs>
1: uh, yes, I think that that is probably how a lot of people would feel about it. You know, if you are in an unfortunate situation where uh, somebody has an untimely death and they've done no planning, you know, you are spry and doing well, and then one day pass away at the age of 50.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, it does happen.
1: Of course, of course. Um, well then what do you you know what what happens uh, if there's been zero portions of the estate already kind of siphoned off through a, an age based estate planning tool, then uh, it's just kind of divided equally per uh, heir and let's just say for instance, there's two children so if you if you have an estate that is valued at maybe let's say a million euros and you have two children there's no surviving spouse, but you didn't do anything to set aside any funds in advance each surviving heir gets a 100,000 dollars allowance that they can take off of their portion of the taxes but then after that everything else is taxed and it's it's a uh, a scale that depends on the remaining value of the estate so even with a hundred thousand dollar deduction that each child is allowed to have, you might end up with somewhere around five hundred thousand uh, dollars in euros uh, that's owed in taxes. I mean, it's just it's a it's a it's a lot of money. It can be you know forty percent or so of the uh, allowed portion that's taxable, and so you might end up with a, an effective tax rate of around thirty percent if you do zero planning. If you have a vineyard and you take advantage of some of these special long term Term leases that they have, where you kind of lease your property to uh, a surviving child uh, before you die, somebody who would be your heir, uh, they, and they promise that they're going to take care of the land for 10 years, then there's different deductions that they can have and they don't have to pay as much taxes. Uh, and so those people maybe only pay less than 4% in taxes. Even with that 4%, the those heirs have to pay upwards of uh, 120,000 euros. And, you know, what what some say is that, that that's a lot to have to pay up front, especially when you think like the value of the land doesn't always equal income, right? You still have to worry about a bad harvest. You have to worry about the weather. You have to, you know, still manage uh, an active farm, uh, but you still have to come up with, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars sometimes.
0: Yeah, I guess you you owe the taxes regardless of how good the grapes are that year. Doesn't doesn't really matter, right?
1: Precisely. Precisely. And it's a, it's a pretty variable um it's a pretty variable industry and so it can make it complicated and and, and uh, challenging, depending on, you know, even the best the best laid plans. Um, and, you know, there's this uh, this group of, uh, it's a union, actually, the General Union of Champagne Winemakers, and they've estimated that when an operator dies in France, on average, the inheritance tax can amount to more than five years of the pure profit that that winery might make.
0: I, I want to get into what this union uh, would like to see happen in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about what's happening now, uh, which is, you know, Probably what happens in a lot of other countries when there's a big agricultural property and the inheritance taxes are really high, which is that big uh, multinational companies come in and uh, you know offer to buy. Uh, it sounds like that's also happening here. That there are you know large uh, making companies that would be all, all too happy to swoop in and purchase a uh, small uh, family vineyard. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure,
1: I I think um, part of what brought this to my attention was conversations I had just traveling around France And when you travel around France, you usually try and stop at a vineyard or two because they're on the side of the road. You might as well. Uh, And I've had so many stories after I tell people that I'm a tax reporter where they say, oh, my neighbor or, oh, my father died. Or, you know, will my children be able to take over this and continue this work? And that's kind of what got me interested in the story in the first place. And then I started did some research and discovered that there's a parliamentarian who has kind of taken up the mantle of this issue, uh, Eric Girardin, who is in the Assembly Nationale, which is sort of like akin to the House of Representatives, for lack of a better way to put it, um, in the U.S. And uh, he's called it the kind of gradual disappearance of family farms and has said that there's an increase in acquisition of both agricultural and wine-growing farms by foreign and, and institutional investors. And part of the problem is that they don't have the same obviously the same expertise, but there's also a matter of like not the same kind of value. They're, the value that some of these places place on the, on the land is not linked to the profitability and that drives up the value of the land, which is problematic for the people who live nearby and then have to change their estimates for how much their land is valued and how much taxes they're going to owe. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, it, is, it is a, a, a concerning issue for, for many in France, in fact.
0: I think one of the things, though, that makes this unique, and I think you get into this in a really interesting way in your story, is that, you know, again, this is happening uh, in a lot of other countries In here in the U.S. We hear a lot about the sort of the big factory farms and the corporatization of, of farming. But in France, vineyards aren't just farms. It's a cultural heritage, uh, you know, that is among the most special things uh, in the whole country, you know, French people put a great deal of importance on winemaking. So it seems like that's another angle that is making uh, lawmakers and policymakers approach this differently, this this cultural importance of the vineyard.
1: Yes, per, no, precisely. You you really you really hit the nail on the head. Uh, there was a study, I think it was in 2019, that 96% of French people feel that wine is part of the country's cultural identity. It, it is It is one of these things that it is just part of the daily life. It is part of um, who France is to themselves, and also how they see their their power projected into the world. You know, it's not just something that you can drink with dinner, which you do, but it, you know, it is it is a it is a source of hard and soft power, right? Like they uh, make up a lot of their freight, uh, their foreign trade imbalance um, through the sale of of wine and spirits. That's a a, a really a big source of their their foreign um, their foreign trade balance uh, for. France, but then it, it is also this uh, this cultural element where people uh, they respect France's wines that they're revered and um, that that gives a certain cachet to the country that um, is is both a, a a source of pride but also creates uh, opportunities for for the government and for the people.
0: Well, finally, let's talk about uh, whether you know there's going to be policy action on this to help out the the family farmers and to help out. The, the, you know, inheritors of these uh, kind of culturally significant vineyards. Uh, on the one hand, as you mentioned, you know, this is a, a, a really popular um, issue in France. People view winemaking as very culturally significant. However, every tax break that you give an inheritor of these vineyards is revenue that the government is not getting. Um, so what do you think the odds are that, you know, some of the proposals put forward by the Champagne Makers Union that you talked about, that they're going to be enacted into law in France. And, and can you tell me about what they, they want to see happen? You know, what, what kinds of changes they want to see happen?
1: Sure, sure. So France is currently going through a rewriting of their agricultural law. And that's an opportunity, uh, as a lot of people see it, to address some of the s- systemic problems that are facing agriculture writ large, um, whether it's climate change or a lack of uh, interest from a younger generation, or in this case, the the inheritance problem and the, the driving up of prices by outside investors. That is probably the best place for some of these issues to be addressed. Now, will it include uh, a removal of of all inheritance taxes for um, vineyards, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, si uh, like maybe that'll happen. <laughs> but um, uh, we'll see a proposal come out probably sometime in the fall. Um, the agricultural minister Mark Fesno, is currently touring the country and he's talking to agricultural groups and he's kind of trying to gather information to put together a bill that he's hoping to have ready sometime this summer and that the parliament would then debate in the fall. So that's we'll, we'll see what he actually puts in the bill. So it's possible. To something along those lines might get included, uh, some sort of tax break. But uh, it'll be in Parliament where uh, changes might might happen. You know there are other things though that they could do, and that's that's what um, a report from that same lawmaker I talked about earlier, Eric Girardin. It, he talked about things that might be a little bit more palatable for people who are concerned about giving tax breaks to the the wine industry. For example, uh, he actually proposed creating some sort of like one stop shop for farmers and vintners to be able to go and get specific answers about their State transfer process. So they wouldn't have to kind of search around. Like there would be a, a government window or some sort of person who's dedicated to providing answers. Um, and then he also was saying, in order to make sure that that's successful, we need to encourage education of people who are skilled in rural law so that you have advisors who are familiar with the, the challenges of, of this kind of lifestyle. Um, He also proposed that maybe what you could do, uh, instead of just getting rid of the tax altogether, is if you remove some of the speculative purchases from the calculation. And so by taking out outliers, you might be able to Come up with a more palatable, um, acceptable level of of taxation. So instead of being driven up by some big multinational that bought your neighbor's farm, uh, that would kind of be taken off of the the average value of the land in your region.
0: So what you're describing here is like if there, if you know, there's a farm in your area. That sells for like twenty percent more than every other farm that's been sold. We'll we'll exclude that and not and not uh, you know consider that when we're coming up with tax rates. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Precisely, precisely. So it, it, it protects them from some sort of outlier driving up the cost of your land and therefore driving up your taxes or the taxable um, value of your land. So yes, you wouldn't have to worry about some crazy sale next door, meaning that you're suddenly going to lose your farm or your vineyard as well. All right.
0: Well, that was uh, Sean Courtney talking to us about uh, grapes, wine and uh, estates. Uh, Sean, thank you so much. This was really, really fascinating. Sure. That was Bloomberg Tax correspondent Sean Courtney speaking to us from Paris. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax is produced by myself, David Schultz. Meg Shreep is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block from Washington. I'm David Schultz.
2: Thanks for listening.
1: I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here.
2: My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit.
1: I remember getting served my cease and desist
0: and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair. How can she get away with this?
2: And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules and you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule?
1: Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority
2: to check unfair methods of competition.
1: There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition.
2: Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.